throughout the COVID pandemic, people have tried many things to help cope with their emotions and reduce the fear they feel. But that may not always be a good thing. If fear can motivate positive health behaviors, perhaps simple things like washing your hands, then could doing away with fear lead to less healthy behaviors? And if so, are there better ways to cope with the current pandemic? To shed some light on this topic, I have with me Brett Ford with the University of Toronto, who's published a paper in the journal Psychological Science on coping with health threats. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It goes without saying that we are in the middle of the greatest health threat in the 21st century. And how people cope with health threats, however, can have their own health impacts. What does your new research tell us about coping with health threats? I mean, we know this is a very stressful time for people. Uh, this is a multifaceted stressor, right? It's not, it's not only a health threat. Um, it's many, many types of threat. And it's also so long lasting. Uh, and we know from a long history of research on coping with stress is that people are going to try to use a variety of, of strategies to help themselves feel better. And that's totally normal. And uh, we're very interested in my lab, me and my students and my collaborators, in trying to understand how people naturally try to cope with stress and you know which particular approaches they can use that are going to help them live healthier, happier lives. And we've been particularly interested recently in understanding some trade-offs of some very popular and commonly endorsed strategies, strategies that are the foundation of cognitive behavioral therapies that have been empirically proven to be healthy and we're we're finding across a variety of domains, and, and the COVID domain is is one of them, that when people focus on reducing or avoiding, kind of subtracting out negativity, avoiding anger, avoiding fear and worry, they're actually less likely to engage in actions that can be really important, um, behaviors that that can help them kind of manage their situation. And so in the context of COVID, when people use approaches that help them subtract out fear and worry, yes, they have better mental health, but they're less likely to engage in these really important, you know, CDC promoted health behaviors. Well, that's easy to understand, I think, in the fact that now that I've had my full vaccination, my level of fear has reduced greatly. And going out without masks on and doing things that I didn't do before, well, it it felt pretty good. I could cast that off. Now that I'm getting back into it, my brain doesn't want to be worried about things like going out without a mask on or interacting with people closely. So recapturing a bit of that, that fear, as it were, may actually make me safer. How does, though, reducing fear specifically play into health threats? So, you know, we have a variety of emotions and one of the kind of functions of fear and worry is to help us to pay attention to threats and to help avoid them. In the present context, we are facing this, you know, unprecedented health threat and there are certain behaviors that we kind of need to engage in and these emotions, these kind of short-lived responses help push us to engage in those. And so when we 
are trying to get rid of those because of the discomfort they bring us, we we end up sometimes missing out on some of that important motivation to to protect ourselves and others, right? Because this isn't just a uh, this isn't just a personal health threat. This is a communal health threat. One of the arguments being used by the anti-mask crowd is that they don't want to live quote in fear, and that is actually understandable. Living in fear is very uncomfortable, but that seems to be leading to an extension of what might have been an already resolved pandemic. Do you look at that factor at all about the people who really are just saying that the cost of living in fear is too great for the communal safety of health behaviors? I think there's two thoughts I have about that. So one is about the particular coping strategy that we focused on in this work is a strategy that involves reinterpreting or reframing, reconsidering what's happening in order to change how you feel about it. We call it reappraisal. So you might think about how something isn't actually that big of a deal, or it'll blow over, or there's nothing really much we can do about it anyway. And in many, many contexts, it might make perfect sense and be, be very healthy to use reappraisal. It keeps you from you know, ruminating and stewing, and we can often exacerbate our, our emotions by how we think about them. And reappraisal gives us a way to kind of make things feel less potent. But imagine in the context of COVID, when we're thinking it's not a big deal, it'll blow over... That's a very powerful way to help reduce worry and fear, Um, but it's also going to help shape the extent to which you engage in these important behaviors. Now, there are other ways to use reappraisal, though, which I think is super important to talk about. So you can think about situations in so, so many different ways. We don't have to subtract out the negativity, make something threatening be less threatening. We can let the threat stay a threat. But we can reinterpret the situation that gives us other opportunities, maybe, right? So this is more of the silver lining way of thinking about a situation. Yes, this is threatening. Yes, this is scary. I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to let that be. I'll also think about this situation as, as maybe an opportunity for me to prioritize what's really important to me, to spend more time with friends and family, to, you know, take on a new hobby um, or, you know, because not everybody's pandemic experience has been taking on new hobbies. It can be, this is an opportunity for me to grow stronger as a person, right? This is, this is a tribulation and, and I'm going to kind of learn and grow from this. So there are many, many ways people can use reappraisal. These kind of flavors of reappraisal, they kind of let the situation stay threatening. It doesn't try to deny the reality of the situation. Um, Instead, it kind of provides opportunities for people to maybe cultivate a little bit of positivity, a little bit of moments of admiration, moments of compassion, gratitude, love, connection. And through those types of experiences, which are not merely the opposite of negativity, right? These can co-occur. We are often experiencing a variety of emotions, We think in the context of COVID, this ability to kind of reframe situations can actually help people protect their mental health 
as well, right? Because positive emotion is also a pathway to to better emotional well-being and mental health. And it, we find no evidence that these emotions in any way kind of interfere with people's health behaviors. So you don't have to live in, you don't have to let it consume your life and overwhelm you. That's certainly nothing that I would ever endorse. But letting it kind of push you to do what needs to be done while cultivating these other experiences that help you protect your emotional well-being that are less likely to kind of get in the way of health behaviors that protect not only you, but also the people that you love and, and broader community members. That's very thoughtful, very helpful conclusions. But how did you actually go about studying that when you're looking at a group of people? How did you take your research question and actually turn it into a result? So we are often interested in how people are feeling about the world, about themselves, about their mental health, about their emotions. And so we, we ask people questions. We ask them about how they're feeling. We ask them about how they manage those feelings. We ask people about their depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms. We ask them about the, beha the health behaviors that they've engaged in. And this is all anonymous and there's no incentive to give any particular answer. And so we assume people are telling us what their experiences are. And then we, we draw inferences from those data. And so we, we started our, our research in February. My collaborator, my, my graduate student, Angela Smith, who is the lead author on this work, she had kept her eyes on headlines. She saw what was what was coming. I don't think she or us or anybody knew how long it would last, but she said, we should be thinking about starting to collect some data. It looks like this is going to be kind of a real stressor for people. And we started collecting data essentially before... COVID was, was declared a pandemic several weeks before it was declared a pandemic. We recruited a couple of samples of Americans, of U.S. adults, um, large samples around you know 500 people who were quite diverse. We actually had two samples that we had recruited, which was originally recruited for a different purpose. Um, we were doing a longitudinal study looking at how people were coping with the stress of politics. So we had recruited those people. We had a very politically diverse sample. And then we also had an ethno-racially diverse sample. It's about evenly distributed um, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and South Asian-Americans, and uh, white Caucasian-Americans. And so with these two groups of people who we originally started studying in, in February of 2020, we just kept following up with them. We didn't know that the study was going to go on for as long as it did. We started collecting weekly data. So every week we would kind of send out a new survey. And then we switched to monthly. And this particular paper we're talking about, we focused on the first about three months of the pandemic. We actually kept collecting data from these people uh, across the first year of the pandemic. And, and those data are kind of being featured in, in other papers that we're, we're writing now. So when you look at the data, was there anything in there that was surprising or unexpected? What in this did you find that we didn't know before? I guess it's not maybe surprising that very high percentages of people were feeling fear, feeling worried. We found that over 90% of people were reporting using reappraisal. And 
I think it is surprising that a strategy that has been so beloved for good reason, um, it forms the foundation of cognitive behavioral therapies and generally has a long, long, illustrious history of predicting better mental health, can come with side effects (laughs) in a way, can come with drawbacks that you wouldn't necessarily think of. And we are learning that those emotions are providing us important purposes. They're helping us do things in our environment that help us live more productive and healthy lives. And so when we get rid of them, when we avoid them, we see these consequences, not for mental health necessarily. Mental health is is still protected, but for some of these other behaviors and, and physical health, I would say I was pleasantly surprised that we found this alternative pathway. We found that you know, you don't necessarily have to be striving to reduce negativity, even in the context of this really intense stressor that we're all experiencing right now. You can focus on these kind of moments of, of positivity. And through that approach to emotional wellness, you can experience comfort, which I think is what many of us want and totally reasonably so, and also still engage in in the health behaviors that uh, that we know are so important. So that was a pleasant surprise. And that does bring me around to my last question. And that is, do you have any other recommendation that, okay, someone's listening to this and it's like, oh gosh, I've got to go through another several months of COVID trying to balance fear and positivity. How can I cope with it best? I would say, first of all, it's okay to feel bad. There's a part of me that always wants to put an asterisk on positivity because I'm not suggesting that we're all that we should all be adopting, you know, a, a Pollyanna perspective, kind of denying reality and feeling pressure to feel good. That comes with its own uh, set of of drawbacks as well. It is okay <laughs> to feel bad. I think what I would really love to convey is that there's not a dichotomy between feeling these these very understandable and common unpleasant emotions and feeling some kind of pleasant, comforting emotions. The situation can be scary and stressful and frustrating. And it can also be a time where we can have compassion for other people and admiration and feel, you know, connected and loving of others, feel grateful for others around us. And accepting our emotions is actually a very powerful way to promote our own mental health. And when we're seeking comfort, maybe focus on some of these um, moments of social connection that we know from a long, a long history of work on on social connection and social relationships that, you know, close others, for example, are one of the most strong and consistent ways for for us to feel good. Well, that gives me some hope, at least as I'm continuing to deal with certain stresses, but uh, getting together with the family later today and maybe putting on my mask and going out and uh, walking around downtown to just enjoy a little bit of the sunshine while I can. So making the best out of a less than ideal situation. 
So I have been speaking with Brett Ford with the University of Toronto, who has published a paper in the journal Psychological Science on the whole concept of coping with fear and health threats during a pandemic. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. If you like learning about the way we think, behave, and learning about the world around us, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on the Podbean app.